This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Following his daring escape from Japan, worthy of a Hollywood movie script, Carlos Ghosn slammed the Japanese judicial system after enduring months in solitary confinement, saying he made the decision to escape because he believed he could not get a fair trial after what Japanese prosecutors told him. You just confess and it will be over. And if you don't confess, not only we're going to go after you, we're going to go after your family. And we're going to discover many things. Ghosn now lives in his native Lebanon, out of the reach of Japanese prosecutors. But in a strange role reversal, it's the people who engineered Ghosn's escape from Japan who are now caught in the Japanese legal system. Former Green Beret Michael Taylor and his son Peter lost their extradition fight and were flown back to Japan to face trial. Joining me is David Yaffe Bellany, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. David, tell us about Michael Taylor. So Michael Taylor is a former Army Green Beret who served in Lebanon in the 1980s. And then when he returned to the U.S., became a security contractor, um, like a lot of former military people do. And as a contractor, he would take all sorts of assignments uh, throughout the 90s. He would participate in government sting operations. He would provide security services for institutions like the Port Authority. Um, you know, he would travel the world working for various companies on, you know, assisting them with security tasks. He was also somebody who was known for his ability to extricate people from tricky situations. He was a kind of extraction expert. So the, uh, you know, the, the, the mothers of kidnapped children would, would hire him to go recover their abducted children, you know, often from kind of dangerous situations in countries in the Middle East. He would sometimes get government referrals to do that sort of work uh, for, for, for regular mothers. And so over time, he, he kind of developed that reputation. But his career took a turn for the worse in around 2012 when he was indicted for his role in a Defense Department bid rating scandal um, and sent to prison in, in Utah after, after pleading guilty. And his security company basically collapsed after that. Has he ever denied planning and executing Carlos Ghosn's escape from Japan? No, there's no question at all that he was the man who orchestrated Carlos Ghosn's escape. Um, there's reams of video footage that the Japanese government included in its extradition request for Taylor that shows him meeting with Ghosn, you know, shows him wheeling around the box in which Ghosn was hidden when he was smuggled onto a plane that whisked him out of Japan. Um, and then Taylor himself, before he was arrested in the U.S. in May, gave an extensive interview to Vanity Fair in which he not only admitted that he was involved in the escape, but explained in great detail how he had planned and executed cooperation. For those who don't know, tell us a little bit about the escape plan. How long did it take them to plan it, and what did they do? So this was a, a month-long planning process that involved dozens of people in various countries around Asia scoping out airports, uh, shipping ports, various kind of entry and exit points um, in the countries around Japan uh, that might present opportunities for for smuggling going to, to freedom. Taylor orchestrated the operation. You know, many of the people who were working for him had, had known him in the past, had participated in his kind of previous projects. And many of them didn't even know precisely what the goal of the planning process was. They actually assumed that they were they were scouting out an escape route for a kidnapped child, since that's the sort of work that 
Taylor had done in the past. Um, but after all of that preparation, Taylor settled on a, on a pretty straightforward plan, which was that he would meet Carlos Ghosn at a hotel in Tokyo. Um, they would take a train to another hotel in Osaka, a different city in, in Japan, and put him inside a, a black crate designed for audio equipment with air holes drilled inside, um, and then smuggle that crate onto a private charter jet that would fly Gone out of Japan. And, and Taylor executed that plan basically to perfection um, and succeeded in getting Gone out of the country. They'd chosen this particular airport and this particular charter jet because they knew that large items wouldn't go through X-ray at security, which meant that you know, Gone's presence inside the box wouldn't be detected. And the whole and the whole process played out very very smoothly. Uh, the plane took Goon from Japan to Turkey, and then he switched flights and took a plane to, to Lebanon, where uh, he has family and he's sort of a national hero. And it's pretty amazing because Goon was under constant heavy surveillance by Japanese authorities, wasn't he? That's true. It was a, a major security failing by the Japanese government, but at the same time, you know, this wasn't a prison break. Goon was out on bail, and he was allowed to move freely throughout the country. There were no restrictions on his movement, and he'd often, you know, have lunch or dinner at one of the hotels where he met Michael Taylor. Um, the, the bullet train that he took from from Tokyo uh, to Osaka was one that he'd taken before with his daughter, and so none of his movements the day of the escape, leading up to when he climbed inside that box, uh, was necessarily a cause for alarm for Japanese security establishments. Do we know how much, about how much this escape cost and how much Taylor was paid? It's never been clear exactly how much the escape cost. And if you talk to sort of veteran security consultants, they'll tell you it must have been 10, 15 million. Prosecutors in the U.S. showed that about $1.5 million was transferred to uh, the Taylor family by Goan. But the family has always insisted that that was to cover the expenses associated with planning the escape and that Taylor himself was actually never paid for the work that he did. Um, that's something that he told Vanity Fair and that he sort of stuck to uh, throughout the process, that he was never actually paid. So now Taylor has a home in Lebanon, and he ends up in Lebanon where he could be free from extradition. Yeah, Lebanon has, has no extradition treaty with Japan. And so if he had remained in Lebanon where he'd met his wife in the 1980s and he had family where a couple of his sons are based, he would have been, you know, he would have been free. He was safe in, in, in Beirut from the grasp of the Japanese authorities, just as, just as Goon has been. He has said that he didn't know that what he was doing was a crime in Japan. Yes. Taylor's argument has always been that he sought legal advice before he ever took on the Goon job and that his lawyers told him that technically bail jumping is not a crime in Japan and therefore helping somebody who's free on bail sneak out of the country is not a crime in Japan. You know, to the average person on the street, that might sound ludicrous. You know, how could it not be illegal to sneak out of the country that way? Um, And certainly in the U.S., there are laws uh, preventing that. But it is true that the Japanese penal code does not have an explicit law banning bail jumping. And that basically became Taylor's legal defense once he was arrested. So if that's the case, for breaking what law are they pursuing him? So the Japanese have have cited a law known as Article 103, which prohibits harboring a criminal. And they basically argued that because Ghosn had been charged with a crime and Taylor 
harbored him, took him took him in and snuck him out of the country, that Taylor's actions constitute a violation of that section of their, their penal code, even if they don't have an explicit provision banning bail jumping. Did any of the judges in the United States look at that argument, examine that argument? Yeah, so this was the, the main topic of the extradition hearing in, in Boston that Taylor ultimately lost. You know, his lawyers cited legal experts from Japan and, you know, case law in Japan to say this particular provision of the Japanese penal code has never been applied in this specific way to penalize this kind of behavior. Taylor thought what he was doing was legal and therefore he shouldn't be extradited. Ultimately, though, the magistrate judge in Boston concluded that it was not the place of a U.S. court to kind of parse the nuances of the Japanese penal code, that that was a task best left to the Japanese justice system, and that therefore this argument wasn't good enough to to block the Japanese extradition request. So after his arrest, Taylor pursued a two-pronged approach to getting out from under extradition to Japan involving law firms and lobbying firms. Describe the extent of that. Yeah, so one important thing to understand about extradition is it's not a purely legal process. For someone to be extradited, a judge has to rule that they are extraditable, that that the extradition request from the country that wants them meets the standards of its treaty with the U.S., but that's only one part of the process. It's also a political decision that the Secretary of State makes. You know, if this person is eligible, should I send them over? And so the Taylors fought the extradition request on on two fronts. They waged this legal battle in Boston, arguing that Michael Taylor had never actually broken the law, and they lobbied decision makers in Washington to try to persuade them to drop the extradition request. And that became a a pretty uh, intensive sort of influence campaign in the the Capitol. Taylor paid more than $300,000 over several months to lobbyists at the firm K&L Gates, who spoke with lawmakers in Congress and officials at the White House State Department. And at one point in December, a lobbyist basically buttonholed Mark Meadows at a White House event, the White House chief of staff under Trump, and you know, and said, you have to look at this case, you have to do something about it. Taylor also went on Maria Bartiromo's Fox Business show um, to talk about his case, and Bartiromo later told Taylor's lawyers that she would bring the case up with the president and see if he would intervene to prevent the extradition from happening. So it was really a a full court press and kind of exactly the sort of campaign that so many people in the Trump era waged to try to avoid legal trouble, to kind of manipulate the levers of power to get a criminal threat removed. He even had one of Trump's former lawyers sign a letter. Did the plea ever get to Trump himself? We don't know for sure. We know that Maria Bartiromo said that she would talk with Trump, and we know that a lobbyist for Taylor spoke directly with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. But it's not clear whether Trump ever directly discussed the case with anybody, though I think it's likely that he was aware of what was going on, given the number of people in his orbit who were being kind of intensively lobbied by the Taylors. And the State Department would not sit down with Taylor's lawyers to discuss anything? Yeah. I mean, really, this whole lobbying campaign was a failure. The Taylors are basically stonewalled at, at every stage of the process. At one point, a State Department official told their lawyers that it was department policy not to sit down and meet with lawyers in extradition cases. And so there was never really any opportunity for kind of extensive negotiations about how the case would be treated. I mean, at one point, 
remember that Michael Taylor's son, Peter Taylor, was also arrested as part of this. At one point, the strategy became, let's convince the State Department to send over Michael Taylor, but to keep Peter Taylor in the U.S. because he wasn't as involved in the case. You know, there was also an effort to try to get the State Department to ensure that Japan would count the time that the Taylors had served in American jail toward any sentence that they receive in Japan. But the Taylors never really had the opportunity to kind of hash out those sorts of issues with the State Department because the government wasn't interested in sitting down with them and negotiating. Considering the number of Trump pardons and even pardons of people in the military, it does seem surprising that they weren't able to get any help at all. Yeah, I, on, on some level, it is surprising, especially the number of stories that we've seen about people who successfully were able to evade legal trouble as a result of that sort of intensive lobbying. But also an extradition is different from a pardon case. It involves matters of foreign policy that can be really sensitive. It's worth remembering that as this case was playing out, the U.S. was trying to bolster its its alliance with Japan to show a united front against China in, in Asia. That was a important strategic priority for the State Department. And I think it's fair to assume that the Trump administration was reluctant to do anything that would jeopardize that relationship with Japan as rejecting an extradition request certainly would have. Conditions in Japanese prisons are sometimes brutal. And they even tried to make an argument about the prison conditions and exposure to COVID-19. After the Taylors failed to persuade a judge that uh, what they'd done in Japan wasn't actually a crime, they turned to a different argument, which is that it would be inhumane and violate certain anti-torture conventions that the U.S. is part of for the Taylors to be extradited to Japan. Um, And they made an argument about conditions in Japanese jails, basically saying that this amounted to torture. They pointed out that the lights are on 24-7. It's difficult to sleep, that COVID-19 was proliferating in Japanese prisons and that it would be dangerous, especially for somebody like Michael Taylor, who's 60 and who recently had a lung operation. They also pointed out that certain uh, due process rights that are afforded to criminal defendants in the U.S. are not available in Japan. For instance, you can be interrogated for lengthy periods without a lawyer in, in the Japanese criminal justice system. There's also an extremely high conviction rate. It's above 99%. So a lot of critics of the Japanese justice system say, you know, this is hostage justice. This is unfair to criminal defendants. And that's really one of the points that Ghosn made repeatedly in the period before he escaped from Japan and then afterwards justify his escape. He claimed that he was mistreated and that he couldn't get a fair trial in Japan and that, therefore, he was justified in his decision to, to simply leave. And so the Taylors are going to face trial in a country where prosecutors virtually never lose. Yes, they're currently being held in the same detention center where Ghosn was once imprisoned. The charge of of aiding Ghosn's escape, harboring a criminal, could lead to a three-year sentence. And at some point, we're expected to see them face trial. And I think there's a lot of political pressure on the Japanese government to take down somebody who was involved in the Ghosn case because of the embarrassment of seeing him flee. And the tailors are on the receiving end of that. Lots of other people were involved in the escape, and the tailors are the only ones that have been singled out. So the Japanese government actually issued an arrest warrant for one other person who was involved in the escape, and a man named George Zayak, who's a former Lebanese soldier and a close friend and associate of Michael Taylor. 
and Zayek was intimately involved in the escape planning and was with Taylor the day it was executed and helped smuggle Ghosn onto the plane. He was really kind of Taylor's, like, number two, his lieutenant, in the execution of the escape. But unlike Taylor, Zayek has simply laid low in Lebanon and decided not to leave the country. If he did leave, he would probably get arrested. And so he has decided to stay in his homeland and, and kind of avoid the Japanese authorities that way. So do we know when the Taylors will be tried? We don't know. It can take a long time in Japan. This is another of Dylan's complaints. The legal process drags on and on and on without any sort of resolution. And so what exactly the timeline will look like is, is not totally clear. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. Judges with predominantly experience in private practice and as federal prosecutors make up more than 70% of the appellate bench, while just 1% have spent the majority of their careers as public defenders or within a legal aid setting, according to a Center for American Progress study. And progressive activists want to change that. They want President Joe Biden to appoint more judges who represented criminal defendants as well as workers, consumers, and civil rights plaintiffs, in addition to more women and minorities. Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. First of all, how did the makeup of the federal bench change under former President Trump? So Trump was able to make a really big impact on the federal bench. He appointed um, more than 230 federal judicial appointments to the district and appeals courts. Um, and, And that really, you know, has a, a huge impact on on the amount of people uh, that uh, he has ties to that are there hearing cases. So um, about a fourth of the federal judiciary are Trump's own appointees. Um, so Trump was able to leave a pretty big mark on the federal judiciary. And um, so when Joe Biden came in, uh, he he had a, a very low number of uh, vacancies that, that were available to him. So that's kind of the landscape that Joe Biden is, is dealing with right now. A number of federal judges have announced they will um, take senior status or retire in recent weeks, um, which has, has significantly boosted the amount of vacancies that Biden has available to him. Uh, but, you know, it, it is still uh, in, in the lower in the lower range of, of vacancies. And as far as the Trump nominees, as I recall, there were very few women or minorities included in the nominations. So Trump had a very low number of, of women and, and minorities. Um, significantly on the courts of appeals, there were no black circuit court appointees, which is the first time since Richard Nixon that that's happened. And there was also only one Latina appointee. Um, so, you know, there, there were a few areas where Trump's judicial appointees weren't as racially diverse as past presidents have been. Um, that's something that, that Joe Biden has highlighted as something that he would like to prioritize. Um, you know, the Biden administration is, is looking to add diversity to the bench, not just in terms of racial and ethnic and gender diversity, but they've also indicated that they're interested in this experiential diversity category, too, which is something the progressives have been pushing for. And that would be adding more people with civil rights experience, people who were public defenders, and people who just aren't really represented on the bench in terms of experiential diversity right now. Tell us about what progressive organizations are drawing up lists and who's on the lists. So we took a look at two different lists from progressive groups, People's Parity Project, which is a, a student group, and Demand Justice. Um, 
both of those lists are, they're a little bit different. So demand justices list is actually a Supreme Court list, but I spoke to Chris Kang, who is the co-founder of demand justice. And, and he told me that it is a pretty good um, representation of the type of people that they would like to see on the lower courts as well. People's parity projects list, on the other hand, is uh, specifically aimed at the appeals courts. Together, these lists represent 76 judges, and many of them are women, minorities, people who have had public defender experience, people who have worked for civil rights organizations. Um, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund is a really common theme that we saw on a lot of you know, the background of people on these lists. Um, so is the ACLU. Um, so, you know, they're kind of representing this different, um, this different background of, of, of nominees um, when compared with um, President Trump's appointees, but also compared with, with past presidents. You know, both of these progressive groups say that past presidents on, on both sides of the aisle haven't prioritized experiential diversity when it comes to their judicial picks, and that's something they'd like to see changed. Do you see a lot of former federal prosecutors on the bench, but you don't see as many people who are former defense attorneys. Why do they think that it's important to have diverse backgrounds? So there was a study that was supported by Demand Justice recently by um, Joanna Shepard, who is a professor at Emory University, that found that these judges who have federal prosecutor backgrounds or corporate law backgrounds are less likely to rule in favor of workers. Um, you know, that kind of highlights this concern for, for people who are um, supporting more experiential diversity on the bench. Um, you know, they, they fear that these judges might uh, you know, have have a bias, um, maybe against uh, workers uh, who who are bringing cases against corporations, um, or you know that they might not be able to look past that part of their experience. Something I heard a common theme, um, you know, from from many of the people I talked to, though, is it's not to say that a uh, federal prosecutor or former federal prosecutor or corporate lawyer wouldn't be able to. Uh, look past that bias and, and side with a worker. It's not to say that they can't do that. Um, you know, obviously applying the law fairly, uh, but that they might have this, this unconscious bias. Um, so this study is, is, was a recent example, um, that progressives are, are pointing to that, that shows that, that this might be the case. So explain what the blue slip process is and what it means that Senate Democrats are going to retain that for district court nominees. So Richard Uren, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has signaled that um, they're going to keep the blue slip around for district court picks for now. Um, they are going to continue the practice that was set during the uh, Trump administration by Chairman Grassley and Graham. Of, of not honoring the blue split for appeals court nominees. Um, and basically what this means is that senators won't be able to have sort of a semi-veto over a pick in their state for appeals court seats. They will have that semi-veto power in their state for district court picks. What that means is that the White House is going to have to work with Republican senators in these states to work on on picks and, and get kind of a consensus around them before they're nominated. Chairman Durbin has warned that this isn't a hard and fast rule and that there could be an opportunity for um, Democrats to change their minds on this down the line. But that is the rule for now, that 
Republicans will still have their blue slips honored, um, which indicates their support for a nominee, will still have their blue slips honored for district court picks. That may cause problems with getting the layers of diversity that these progressive groups want. So that could that could have a problem. Um, you know, it will mean that someone with um, this experiential diversity, uh, you know, if they were suggested by the White House in these negotiations or however this this nominee comes up, this this potential nominee comes up, that the Republican senator and the White House would have to agree on that person. That's not to say that they couldn't agree, but it could be a potential obstacle if the White House is pushing for people with more progressive-leaning backgrounds. Um, Another obstacle that could come up is the ABA ratings, so the ratings by the American Bar Association. The American Bar Association has some minimum requirements for, for people uh, who are judicial nominees, and one of those is having at least 12 years of experience as a practicing lawyer. And, you know, that has tripped up, that tripped up some of, of Trump's nominees. Um, and if you're pushing for people who are younger, uh, as, as, you know, these progressive groups are, that is something that you might run into as an obstacle. And how is Biden going to treat the American Bar Association ratings? So the Biden administration isn't going to allow the American Bar Association to have an advanced role in this process like the Obama administration did. Um, They're not going to be able to look at these candidates and pre-screen them before they're nominated. Um, They'll have the same role in the process that they did during the Trump administration, which was that they would vet them after they were nominated. So they still have a role in in this process. ABA ratings are still something that senators will point to in confirmation hearings, but they won't be able to have that advanced screening that might even prevent someone from being nominated in the first place. Um, This is something that was hailed by progressives as a step in the right direction. Um, They said that the ABA could potentially prevent a good nominee from being nominated in the first place. So this is something that is the Biden administration, again, moving potentially in this more progressive direction with judicial nominations. Tell us how this desire for work experience diversity is causing something of a problem in Colorado. So in Colorado, the two senators there recommended a pick for an open district court seat. It was a pick who they had nominated during the Obama administration and she wasn't able to get through. Her name is Regina Rodriguez. She has had experience as a corporate lawyer and she is Latina. That recommendation got pushed back from progressive groups because of those corporate law ties. They're saying they don't want to see people who have this experience as a corporate lawyer and that that's not what the Biden administration asked for. In a letter to Democratic senators, White House counsel Dana Remus asked, senators to look at experiential diversity and to look at people who had been public defenders and people who had been involved in civil rights organizations. So progressive groups are basically saying that this doesn't line up with what Biden was asking for, and it doesn't line up with what they're pushing for. I did get a little bit pushback on that in my reporting, and I spoke to the the president and general counsel of MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, who said he understands that there's a lot of ground to make up in terms of professional experience, but racial and ethnic diversity remain really important. And if there's going to be corporate lawyers on the bench, there will always be corporate lawyers and federal prosecutors, at least their ranks can include people who have racial and ethnic diversity.
And there are very few Latinos on circuit courts. That's true. On the D.C. circuit, for example, there has never been a Latino or Latina judge. And that's something that Thomas A. Sines, the, the president and general counsel of Maldives, told me that he would like to see changed and the organization would like to see changed under the Biden administration. What about um, American Indian judges? So that's another group that's really underrepresented on the federal courts. You know, there are currently two active judges who are American Indian, according to Federal Judicial Center data. Um, you know, I spoke to a professor and director of Native Nations Law at the UCLA School of Law, Angela Riley, and she said that that leaves a gaping hole in American jurisprudence. Even if someone were named to the bench who had corporate law ties or didn't, and they were American Indian, they would bring an understanding of tribes and Indian country and issues facing Indian country that isn't currently represented on the bench, and, and that still brings something. So you spoke to an appellate court lawyer who was surprised to see her name on one of the lists. When I spoke to Aisha Anand, she said that her experience and her background representing prisoners, taking on reproductive rights cases, making her views publicly known on a podcast, it wouldn't typically be the type of background that uh, you'd see in a judicial nominee. But she said the fact that she's being considered for, for something like this just shows how much the conversation has changed in, in the last few years. Also, I thought it was interesting what former judge Nancy Gertner told you about being on the bench. So Judge Nancy Gertner has actually very similar experience to Aisha Non, I know she represented people in, in criminal defense cases. She worked on abortion and sex discrimination cases. And she actually did become a federal judge. And she said that those experiences gave her a different perspective during her 17 years as a district court judge in Boston. You know, she said that she added the experience of walking into the courtroom with her client and walking out of the courtroom with, with him in chains. And, you know, that made her ask questions that that maybe a judge without those experiences might not have asked in court. Thanks, Madison. That's Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for joining us. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.